So brain emulation is the scenario where we port the software that's in the human brain now. So today, if you have an old computer running software that you like, and you want that same kind of software running on a new computer, one approach is to stare at the software, try to guess how it works, and then write software on the new computer that works how you think it works on the old computer. But another approach is to write an emulator on the new computer that just makes the new computer look like the old computer to the software. If you can write an emulator, you can just move the software over and it works. You don't have to understand it. You don't have to rewrite it. Big savings if the software is complicated and messy. So the idea is to do that for the human brain, to make an emulator for the software in the human brain. Welcome to Fringe FM the podcast that explores the edges of human understanding and looks at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Here, the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at fringe.fm. AI automation, robotics. It seems as if every startup and large business today is looking at AI and the implications of automating both jobs and tasks to lead to greater efficiency and output. Today, we have Robin Hansen on the program. Robin's the Associate Professor of Economics at George Mason University, a research fellow at the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford, and did a doctorate in social science from Caltech, a master's in physics from University of Chicago, and spent nine years studying artificial intelligence at Lockheed Martin and NASA. He's been cited in over 3,500 articles, 60 publications, and has been in the media quite frequently. He's the author of Elephant in the Brain and The Age of M, where he looks at the implications and potential of artificial intelligence and the emotions and driving forces of humanity. Today, I had the chance to chat with Robin. It was incredibly interesting. We covered a wide range of the topics, including the reasons our cultural values and norms are quickly changing, why physics forced Robin to become an atheist, how Robin sees artificial intelligence progressing, the powers of prediction markets and why we haven't seen more uptick, why brain emulation may be the most likely future scenario, why Robin prefers to be more a historian than a futurist when it comes to forecasting forward, why we'll never answer the hard problem of consciousness, why economics is a great way to forecast the future, the problem with academia, and why Robin isn't worried about breakout AI. And now without further ado, I give you Professor Robin Hansen. Do you run a business or blog and hate hosting and managing your site? If you do, check out WP Engine, the managed WordPress hosting company, 500,000 plus sites trust to simplify everything. They've got a special offer just for you listeners. If you go to disruptors.fm slash WP Engine, you'll get 35 free premium studio press themes with any purchase. Look at our site. I couldn't do this design on my own. You need themes. These guys help you manage everything and simplify it. Save yourself a ton of time and headache in the process. Disruptors.fm slash WP Engine. And now, let's get on with the program. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I love to start these off with a story. And you said you were in a cult as a kid. I think that's where we got to start. Uh, well, around 12 years old or so, a young tween, I, um, was, my parents were Christian and I was Christian and I met up with this other uh, Christian church. And, uh, this was a Pentecostal church in the San Diego area. And they had uh, young idealistic people and lived in group homes. And some of them went off and lived in a compound in Iowa. And so I went to their services regularly there in San Diego and, uh, they spoke in tongues and they were energetic and they were very loving and passionate and, uh, you know, in, inclusive. And as a nerdy little 12-year-old boy, I ate that up. And then um, my parents, uh, you know, then soon disapproved. 
And uh, so they eventually uh, said I couldn't go, and so I didn't, and then that just faded into my background. And eventually I've, I've become atheist in the sense that uh, uh, in college I learned physics and it became my worldview, and there just wasn't much room in the physics worldview for the mystical elements of religion. And uh, I never got mad or like had a big argument. I know some people who, who are converted to atheism, you know, sort of blame the parents and say, why did you teach me all this stuff? But uh, that isn't all my style. Yeah, it's easy to understand how ignorance comes in from other people and they pass it down. So you, you essentially go a full 360. Economics and physics are about as far away from religion as you can get. <laughs> that kind of uh, I'm not sure they are so far away. Well, they, they're, they're grand. So um, in my talks, I, I show this circle of academia. So if you, if you map all the academic fields by co-citation, that is, and you put the ones next to each other that cite each other a lot, it turns out to be a ring. And it turns out that uh, economics and physics are close to each other on one side of the ring. They're, they're the abstract topics. The opposite side of the ring is, you know, molecular biology, geophysics, you know, all these very fine details and a lot of medicine. But computer science, uh, physics, economics... They're all on the other side in mathematics uh, over there with uh, big abstract concepts, powerful theories that explain a lot of things with a small number of assumptions. And religion is kind of like that, too, at least in its theology, as has these big grand conclusions. Interesting. That is a, that's an interesting way of looking at it. I want to I want to dive in now. So you've written a couple of books. The Age of M was the one that initially initially brought me to your brought you to my attention and your look at essentially artificial intelligence and what the future could look like. So let's jump into that because I know you make a lot of predictions and you've, you're looking at a lot of data. Right. That book came out two years ago, uh, but just this last week, the paperback edition has come out. So it's timely in that sense. And I actually uh, saw it in the airport bookstore <laughs> a oh, few days gotta, ago. <laughs> that's got to feel awesome, I imagine. <laughs> it, it's San Francisco airport, of course, which is a little odd, I'm sure. It's not going to be in most airport bookstores, but it was nice to see it in the airport bookstore there. So the book is called The Age of M, and uh, the topic is one route to artificial intelligence and what would be the consequence. So as you know, uh, one of the biggest, you know, most plausible theories about what big thing could happen in the future is that we eventually achieve machines that are as smart and capable as humans. We aren't remotely near there, but that certainly could happen. There are actually several routes by which it might happen. And my book focuses on a route that people aren't talking as much about today, but it's still one of the main plausible routes, and that's brain emulation. What is brain emulation and why did you go that way? So brain emulation is the scenario where we port the software that's in the human brain now. So today, if you have an old computer running software that you like, and you want that same kind of software running on a new computer, one approach is to stare at the software, try to guess how it works, and then write software on the new computer that works how you think it works on the old computer. But another approach is to write an emulator on the new computer that just makes the new computer look like the old computer to the software. If you can write an emulator, you can just move the software over and it works. You don't have to understand it. You don't have to rewrite it. Uh, big savings if the software is complicated and messy. So the idea is to do that for the human brain, to make an emulator for the software in the human brain. So to do that, we need lots of cheap, fast, parallel computers. We need to take particular human brains and scan them and find spatial and chemical detail. And then we need computer models of how each kind of cell works in terms of taking signals in, changing internal state, and signals out. If you have good enough models of each kind of cell and a good enough scan of a particular brain, then you can make a computer model of that whole brain and put it together and just turn it on. And if you do it right, it should just work without your having to understand that structure and software. You don't need to know why it works. You just need to know that it works. And if, if it's right, that this emulation will act the same way in the same situation as the original human brain. It will be different as it has different experiences, but it's very predictable and understandable. So that's what a brain emulation is. We're not close to that, but plausibly we might be within a century or so. 
And go ahead. Realistically, it'll be very challenging because every brain is wired differently, built differently. It's not like you can run a great machine learning algorithm over those. Oh, sure. But it's like copying a movie. (laughs) So if you get a movie on a disc and you want to make a private copy, you don't need a different program for every movie. You need just one generic program to copy discs. The idea is to have just a generic process that would scan a brain and tell you which cell is where connected to what for that particular brain. And that same process would work for a different brain. It's just collecting a bunch of bits describing where the cells are, but not understanding them. Just like program that copied a movie wouldn't understand the movie or be able to make another different movie. It would just copy all the bits in the movie. Why do you think, why do you think that this is slightly controversial? It seems like at least when I think about it, I feel an internal backlash. Like, is it actually that easy to do? Not easy in terms of the technology we have, but easy in terms of the ability to map a brain. Do you think that's just human human ego? Well, there are two different ways a problem can be hard. A problem can be hard because it just has difficult, you know, conceptual things that are just hard to understand and hard to do. And a problem can be hard just because it's large. Like you and I, you know, if I were working in my backyard, if I had one, we, we could make a dam uh, by just piling a bunch of dirt in a spot such that the water didn't leave that spot, right? That would be a dam. You and I would find it very hard to make Hoover Dam. Not <laughs> The concept really isn't that different. It's just on a vastly larger scale. But once I show you how to make a small dam and even a mildly larger dam, you'll get that Hoover Dam is possible. Uh, you don't, you know, it's not clear when, not clear when you can afford it, but eventually it'll be possible. So brain emulations are hard, but they're hard in this scaling sense. So from the conceptual point of view, from the can we understand how to do it at all point of view, what we have to understand for brain emulation is how to model brain cells. That is, for each particular cell, we need a computer model of how it takes signals in, changes internal state, and sends signals out. That's not trivial. Now, we have decent models for a lot of kinds of brain cells. We just need models for all the kinds of brain cells. That That's the challenge. And it does seem that individual brain cells are just simpler than brains. I mean, that's not obvious. It, it could have been the other way around. But uh, if an individual brain cell is simpler than a brain, then it will be easier to have a model of a brain cell than to have a model of a brain. So the familiar route to artificial intelligence is trying to model a brain. It's trying to understand the whole brain in terms of what are its main parts and how they interact and what functions they provide. And that's as hard as understanding a brain is. For emulation, in terms of the conceptual difficulty, the the thing is, can you understand a brain cell? Which they're complicated. Now, of course, most of the complexity of a brain cell isn't relevant here. So all we really need to do is model the complexity that's relevant for the signal processing, for how they change signals that come in and go out. Hey, Matt here, a quick aside. I should have pushed back on this in the podcast. I don't think you can model brain cells so simply in terms of ones and zeros and get an effective output for intelligence and possibly consciousness. This is something where I think Robin's a little bit too optimistic in terms of how easy this will be. And I think it will be significantly more challenging, especially considering all of the separate factors that go into how we think and operate. But didn't have time for that in the podcast. Maybe next time. Let's jump back to it. And brain cells, of course, are cells. And so they have all the complexity that cells do in terms of being able to reproduce and sensing and repair, et cetera. And so we'll definitely have to, you know, we can avoid most of that complexity, but we will have to figure out what are the relevant parts and model them. So the main argument for brain emulations being feasible eventually is that uh, that brain cells are simpler than brains. And then it's a matter of scaling it up by making, doing a lot of them. And of course, we're not there yet. But uh, as you know, we have a lot of technologies that once you can do a few of them, uh, as the cost falls and the technology gets better, you can do more and more. You can scale it up. Do you think consciousness is an emergent property of connected uh, connected intelligent cells? Well, consciousness is a property of you and I. You and I are physical objects. We are exactly physical objects. There isn't an extra part of us beyond the physical parts of us. We are just physical objects. We are made out of atoms, arranged in certain ways. We have confirmed this 
through an enormous detail of a repetition, every part of you, we take it out and we take it apart and we see that it's made out of ordinary matter interacting in the ordinary ways. So that's what you and I are. We are physical objects. So obviously, physical objects are capable of consciousness. Are non-physical objects. <laughs> that's where we get into an interesting scenario. <laughs> well, um, we are physical objects, you and I. And clearly, you know, we are conscious. Therefore, uh, physical objects can be conscious. So if you think there's some special feature of physical objects that makes them conscious, that isn't just the physical parts of them, there's some extra part, and that this extra part doesn't interact with the physical parts, then there's no data we're ever going to get about the physical world that will tell you about this extra part. And so if you have these different hypotheses about how these different parts have to be arranged in a certain way in order for something to be conscious, we're just never going to know about that. I need to jump in here. Robin may well be right, but keep in mind, never say never. When we put limits on ourselves, it means we're not able to think bigger or think outside the box. And it's especially problematic because it assumes that the future scenario always stays similar to the present. We don't know what we don't know what we don't know. And that's the big problem. Now jumping back. So you just start out right now. We know as much as we ever will about any non-physical parts that are required for consciousness. We, we will argue about this for trillions of years if you believe about that. And which, So this idea of brain emulation has been around for a while. And whenever the subject comes up, people usually get focused on these philosophical topics. You know, would an emulation be conscious? What variations would be conscious? Also, if you made one of me, would it be me? Uh, they get focused on the technology, you know, what mechanisms would be possible. This conversation has gone over and over again for decades. And I've been tired of that. And I've thought, there's been a key part that was neglected, which is, okay, but what would actually happen? And there's very little attention to that. Uh, there's some fiction scenarios where people play out dramatic stories, but they aren't at all trying to be realistic. So in my book, I don't really give much attention to the philosophical issues. I go straight to saying what would happen uh, and say, look, if you want to hear about the philosophical debates, there's plenty of other places to go read that. What would happen? Just a, a brief overview of some of your thoughts. Okay. So it's a world that's as different from our world as our world is from our farmer or forager ancestors. That is pretty different. These emulations uh, initially will be black boxes. They'll be opaque. And so we won't be able to modify them very much. We won't be able to go in and tweak somebody's motivation or, or make them, you know, music abilities, in, you know, to be a different music genre or something like that. We just take these black boxes and we can turn them on, turn them off, erase them, copy them or run them fast and run them slow. And that's about it. So later on, we might be able to do more and maybe that will change things a lot. But initially, all we could do is just run these black boxes. Initially, these black boxes would be produced from scans of individual humans and they would be destructive scans. They would destroy the original human in the process of creating the scan. And so it would be a, a one way move from becoming an ordinary human to becoming an emulation. If that sounds morbid, that's because it is. Don't worry, we're going to jump into cryonics and extending life a little bit later in the episode. Robin's actually a cryonics patient. So let's keep rolling. And these emulations would create a new world. They would have physical cities, but it would be different from the human cities. And in these cities, they would grow very fast. So our economy doubles roughly every 15 years. And these emulations, their economy would double roughly every month. So very quickly, their economy would come to dominate the economy of the earth. Wait, just a quick, a quick caveat question. Are we talking about a Ready Player One scenario where they're living in a virtual world or these are robots or in some way physical presences? So, so the emulations, you know, end up doing all the jobs because they're cheaper and better. And they uh, do jobs that we do mostly in desk jobs, and they do those in virtual reality. But when they have a physical job that's very connected to physical reality, then they do that in a physical body. So when they're driving a truck or managing an assembly line or you know digging a mine, they have some appropriate body for that task. That body can be swapped out any time. So it's like getting in a truck <laughs> to drive when you're a trucker and getting out when you have a break. Uh, they don't have to stay in that body all the time, but but they have whatever body they need for the job. In 
you know, in, when, when they're working at a desk job, they might as well be at a virtual desk. And when they're in leisure, they're in a virtual uh, world. But they, they know it. It's not like the Matrix or something where they're <laughs> fooled into thinking they're in some other world. Uh, it's more like our cities and our buildings. If you look around you in a building, almost all the surfaces you see are artificial. They are constructed so that they will seem a certain way. You know, behind the surfaces you see, there are pipes and struts and wires <laughs> that you don't see that are there to make things work. But uh, you know there's all those things behind the walls. You just don't want to look at them, and so we don't show them to you. So the same for the emulations. They live in a virtual reality. It looks the way they want it to look, but they know it's a virtual reality. They know how it's made, and that's important to them sometimes. And they would be driving the vast majority of the economy because they can essentially speed themselves up. Well, they're cheaper is the key point. But in addition to being cheaper, they can change their speed. So the two most dramatic differences in their lives from us are the fact that they make copies of themselves and the fact they can change their speed. Uh, of course, another difference is they're immortal, <laughs> in principle at least, which you might think is dramatic. And another difference is that they always, virtual reality can be gorgeous and luxurious with no pain, grime, disease, hunger. Their bodies can always be beautiful. So those are mi mild differences from our world. But the biggest differences are the fact they can make copies and then they can change their speed. Which would make it very appealing for people that were already economically disenfranchised because now suddenly you can port into another world. You can eat whatever you want. You could, I mean, in, in a sense, you can be Jay-Z or you could be a bum. Well, so you can have a luxurious physical experience. It's not clear how satisfying that is to humans because we are pretty status conscious people. <laughs> and so presumably they'll figure out whatever is high status in this world that's limited and, and lust after that. And so <laughs> they may not be that satisfied. Just like today, uh, we're living in a ri pretty rich society and we can give most people the, sort of the physical comforts that um, people wanted for the last you know, 10,000 years. And mostly they're not happy with those because they want the other things everybody else has. And everyone else is not happy to give them those. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very interesting dichotomy. We'll jump into that in a sec. Why did you choose brain emulation when your focus was on what the potential for artificial intelligence? Was that the most likely scenario, in your opinion, or just one that had been less explored? Well, I certainly thought it was neglected. And so I do have a strong heuristic to uh, look for neglected topics in my work. And it's also easier to make predictions about. So when we just think about abstract future robots, it can be pretty hard to get some sort of purchase, some concepts that let you make predictions about that. That's actually what I'm doing now on a, on a separate project. But with the brain emulations, they're very human-like, and we know a lot about what humans are like. And so you can say a lot about this world. And I really wanted to show how much you could say about a particular scenario uh, by just turning the crank and, and making predictions using our standard tools. It's essentially first principles thinking, but just starting at something and going from there. It's um, it's very interesting. So you studied economics and physics. It's a uh, an and computer science. And computer science. It's an interesting combination. What what gives? Well, like I said earlier, I, I like abstraction. Now, actually, I think most people who are inclined to become intellectuals who try to get a career as an intellectual, the, one of the most common failure modes is that they can't focus enough. People enjoy, you know, spreading their attention across a wide range of topics and 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 areas, disciplines, etc. That's just fun for people. And when they're treating their intellectual life as as fun, uh, doing what they enjoy, they spread themselves out a lot. And then the worlds that reward you for being intellectual, they reward focus a lot more, especially academia. I was like most wannabe intellectuals, too, too broad, but I managed to squeak by by being narrow enough to uh, to achieve you know concrete accomplishments in, in my particular area. But uh, once that constraint was, was weaker, I was more tempted to spread out again. So I, I think 
compared to most academics, I'm pretty wide, but compared to most wannabe intellectuals, I'm about usual. Do you think that we need to re- overhaul the, the system, the education system? I have uh, many critiques of our research and education systems, but whether they can be solved by overhaul is a hard question. It's much easier to, to diagnose what's going wrong than it is to produce uh, effective fixes. Yes, it is, especially when to, to have an effective fix, you have to kill the existing patient, <laughs> typically. Well, when part of the problem is what the customers want and they don't want what you want them to want. So, for example, you know, for, for the advertising industry, you could say, gee, the advertising industry is not doing a very good job of informing customers about the price and features of products. We should reform advertising to make advertising more informative. And of course, the problem is that the ultimate customers of advertising don't actually want that so much. <laughs> the current kinds of advertising are, are targeted for them to uh, catch their attention and, and generate interest in them. And um, what you really want is for the customers to be different or somehow to force the customers to consume a different kind of advertising than they would choose for themselves. Which and that same problem in education and in research, you can identify the problem, but it ultimately comes down to the customers and what they want. Would you lean towards totalitarianism? I don't know. I'm, I'm quite concerned about totalitarianism, but I, I get the, I, I see the trade-off. Um, so, so I'm actually interested in the topic more generally of the trade-off between what I call governance and competition. And I think that trade-off is especially interesting regarding the future. Uh, and I think a lot of the discussions of the future uh, end up being discussions of that key trade-off regarding the future. What are, what are some predictions that you have in terms of governance and where we might be headed? A quick timeout before Robin answers. This is why I love economists. They're able to look at and analyze situations in a completely different sense than the vast majority. Robin's about to break down a concept that's very interesting, not something that's well thought about, and explains the shift in behaviors and human trends as we've moved forward from a society of scarcity to a society of abundance. Hope you enjoy. Just straightforward predictions on governance is that you know we've slowly been able to do governance on larger scales, uh, larger geographic scales, larger social scales, and to do more topics uh, of governance. And so we've been doing more governance. That That's the straightforward trend over the last century or two. And uh, in a world that continues like ours, that, that would continue to be the trend. Uh, I also think that our attitudes are moving in that direction. So I have this story of how most of the major social and attitude value trends over the last century or two uh, are caused by our moving from forager to farmer, I'm sorry, farmer to forager values. And I think this is part of that, but that's not the main thing. Mainly, we are just getting good at larger organizations. So this is also true for firms. Firms are slowly getting larger. Uh, Cities are getting larger. Uh, Nations are getting larger. Government is doing more things. And so that's a slow long-term trend, but it is a slow trend. And it means at the largest scales, we still fail to apply governance to a lot of things because we're still not very good at it. And many people would like to jump faster than we are really able to do. And, and I think that's, you know, often typically a mistake to try to do governance at a larger scale on a larger topic than we're really up to the task. The bigger it gets, the less efficient it gets typically. There's a lot of costs on larger scale coordination. Mm-hmm. All the paperwork, especially. <laughs> so you, uh, you have a major background in prediction markets. I want to get into that and in the economic side of things. I know you worked with DARPA on some prediction markets that apparently have helped the U.S. government in the Middle East. Well, we were a research project, you know, assigned to the task to show that. But um, so in 2003, now 15 years ago, uh, over 15 years ago, I was part of a project that was trying to show the Department of Defense that you could use prediction markets on topics of interest to it. And we chose geopolitical stability and related events in the Middle East as our topic. And um, we were about ready to go live with uh, a website to invite beta test users (laughs) 
to be included. And then there was a big press conferences that two senators held declaring that the Department of Defense was about to have betting markets on terrorist attacks. And this was a terrible thing. <laughs> and and that was my project. But um, And then the very next morning, the Secretary of Defense uh, declared the project killed. <laughs> In between that time, nobody asked us if the accusations were correct, which they weren't. Uh, but they happened to have this press conference just when the DARPA PR person was uh, unavailable. What a coincidence. And uh, so there was a lot of press over that um, over the next few months uh, about this topic. But uh, and that kickstarted more attention into prediction markets at the time. What is a prediction market for people that don't realize? And what are the implications? So a prediction market is, isn't just another name for a speculative market or a betting market like a stock market or a currency market or betting on football. The key idea is that uh, when people bet on a question like, will this team win this game or will this horse you know, be the winner of the horse race or where will the stock price go or what will be the price of gold? The market price ends up aggregating a lot of information. Uh, the, the current market price is a pretty good estimate of the future. In fact, it's hard to do better. And that's a powerful force that until recently hasn't really been harnessed for many other purposes. So uh, if you want to know something, say you've got a project at your company and uh, you wonder, you have a deadline and you wonder, will we make the deadline? The usual approach is to have meetings where people related to the project say, how are you doing with your part of the project? And uh, people say, we're, we're, we're probably going to make the deadline. We're looking okay. Here's our issues. And then they produce some aggregate forecast out of that. And it's usually not very good. <laughs> Particularly, it tends to be biased toward telling you you're going to make the deadline even if you want. If you just make a betting market where people can bet on this deadline and they can bet anonymously so that uh, even if they have bad news, they won't retaliation won't hurt them. That ends up being a lot more accurate. It tells you quite reliably whether or not you're going to make the deadline. And that's a powerful force that you could use for that purpose. If you wanted to know, will we make the deadline? You can also use it to say, will we, what will sales be of this product? You can use it to answer many conditional questions. You could say, what will sales be of this product? Uh, if we introduce this product, if we put it at this price, uh, how will, what will the chance of making the deadline be if we change who's running the project, if we add more personnel, if we change the requirements? So uh, predictor markets have this huge potential to um, help organizations and people you know, find out things about the future if they want to know. What are your thoughts on the crypto projects that are trying to create uh, decentralized prediction markets? Well, most of the crypto projects out there are software people who are really focused on software issues. You know, mostly they are software people who put up a coin offering and got some money and then went to work solving the software problems that they thought were interesting and important. And there are, of course, some software issues, uh, but we've had prediction market software before. We weren't lacking for prediction market software. Uh, we could always have better software. What we were lacking before was organizations willing to use that software on their problems. There's a lot of issues in prediction markets being disruptive in organizations. And so what we really need is to explore different ways to use prediction markets in organizations in order to try to overcome this problem of political disruption. That's what the field of prediction markets needs. And for that, they need organizations willing to try. And that's actually been hard to find. What if you just uh, use it outside of organizations? Because then it will still be used by organizations, but they will have no control. Well, the, I mean, the key thing is somebody has to pay for it. So the, the, it's a technology for aggregating information, for collecting information together on a topic. It comes at a cost. And so somebody has to decide this is a topic worth having information on. So if you have a deadline, somebody has to decide, I want to know if we'll make the deadline. And then if they create this market and they subsidize it, then other people will be tempted to come and participate to tell you whether you make the deadline. So it's a way of paying other people to tell you something, but somebody has to pay. If you just make a market and throw it open to the world, then the people who contribute will be people who do it for their own reasons. And of course, they'll only do those on their own topic. So we do have some markets out there in the world on currency and stock and uh, sporting events. 
and they happen for a spattering of reasons, but uh, the, though it won't work for just a generic random topic. If you, if you have a generic topic that you want an answer to and you just open a betting market on it somehow out there, uh, there's very little chance that anybody will care enough to contribute to answer your question. People today care about sports because they like to argue about sports with each other, and that's something they're really into. And so they like to bet on sports as a way to affirm their knowledge about sports and that, that they are committed to their sporting um, Plus, it's a safe topic. It's not like betting on politics where you have to hate the other person. <laughs> and people are willing to some extent to bet on like the presidential election because uh, they argue and talk about that. And then there's a lot of economic incentives for speculation about currency and stocks and commodities. Uh, that is, there's a lot of economic organizations that buy and sell those things. And as long as that's happening, then if, if there's a mispricing in those things, there's a lot of money to be made by somebody else coming in and fixing those mispricing. And, and that tempts people to come in and study those markets and, and trade on them. But again, if you just pick a random topic of interest to you and set up a market on that, there's no particular reason to expect anybody else to care enough to come and trade to answer your question for free. Uh, people do answer sporting questions for free because they are already, for, for other reasons, uh, thinking about those questions and wanting to show people that they know better. But that's not true of your random question. So you'd have to implement a Quora type system where you have reputational scoring for answering questions for basically people that want to prove, well, prove they're experts. There are many ways to pay the participants, uh, but still they need to be paid. <laughs> so Quora is a way of, of you know, enticing people to answer questions. Quora relies on people wanting to have a reputation for, you know, answering people's questions. But of course, they only answer the questions they want to answer. So you can't just ask a random question of interest to you on Quora and get it answered. You'll have to ask the sort of question that other people will be inclined to answer. Fair point. I want to I wanna transition a little bit now. What industries are you most excited about? I see myself as, as an economist looking at the whole economy. So I think, say, compared to most futurists, I, I want to be um, not really focusing on small number of particular industries and products. I, I think there's something unhealthy or at least uh, inaccurate uh, uh, in sort of the, ten the tendency of futurists to sort of talk about the world in the future in ways very different than historians talk about the past. So you know, any one time period, you could you know, talk about it before it as a futurist, or you can talk about it afterward as a historian. And it's the same period with the same major events and the same major processes going on. But those two groups of people talk about events in very different styles. They have very different expectations for events. And uh, I want to be more like the historians because I think they're more accurate. I want to think about the future as if I were thinking about it later as history. And for that person, that purpose, I want to understand all the major important forces that are likely to be going on and not just focus on a few sexy demo things that a lot of people are pushing the products on. What would you say are the, are the three most important factors that you're looking at currently then? in terms of the economy and where we're headed. Ever wonder why futurist forecasts are so far off? Robin's about to explain. Well, there's just uh, long-term trends and understanding them. And so that has to be the first priority. I, I think futurists, people who call themselves futurists, get way too focused on short-term fluctuations. And they should really focus first and foremost on the longest-term trends and understanding them. So, you know, not just why are we getting rich, but why are our attitudes changing? As I said, I think uh, our attitudes are changing because, because we're getting rich. And that's making us move toward forager values relative to farmer values. Can you explain that a little bit more? Uh, sure. So foragers, you know, hunted and gathered for a million years, and uh, they were mostly like animals in the sense that uh, they did what felt right, and that was mostly the right thing to do. But humans had enough cultural plasticity to be able to make new cultures and new values, and that was useful when farming became possible. 
farming was really only possible with a lot of changed attitudes and behaviors. So foragers uh, were egalitarian. They shared their food. They wouldn't allow anybody to brag or, or, be, or put themselves up as a boss. And they, they made decisions collectively. And they were relatively promiscuous. They didn't have long-term marriage, although they had short-term pair bonds. They you know, raised kids more communally. They didn't save up things uh, for the future. They'd had very few physical property. Uh, they didn't own land. They were in friendly relations with their neighbors. But farming required a whole different world of attitudes. Farmers lived in much larger groups uh, that were more hostile to their neighbors. They had war. They had inequality within. They had property. They had marriage. They had slavery. <laughs> they, you know, were, uh, they didn't travel as much. They had less art. They had less free time. Their nutrition wasn't as good. They needed more self-control to make plans for the future and to, to, to trade and fight war and, and have you know, all these things. And so uh, farmers relied more on conformity and uh, religion and, and a lot of sort of attitudes of celebrating self-control and uh, self-restraint and commitment. And uh, that worked for 10,000 years. And then in the last few hundred years, we've been individually getting rich. And as we've been getting rich, a lot of the social pressures that turned foragers into farmers have just no longer felt as compelling to us. So, for example, you know, f uh, foragers are relatively promiscuous, but uh, farmers marry. And if you have a young farming woman who is tempted to have a child out of wedlock, because uh, it's a very natural temptation, the cultural tells that woman, well, if you do that, you and your child may starve. And that's a very real threat. It's it's not pretend. It's not fake. It's it's credible. And that keeps women like that largely in line in terms of what the culture wants them to do. Now, as you get rich, you are have the same temptations, but now you see around you other people who follow those temptations and did okay. There are a lot of young single mothers who are living okay lives. At least. And so many people say, you know, the threat that the farming world had of all the terrible things that would happen to you aren't as credible. And that's true all through our lives. And so a lot of major social trends over the last few centuries, I think, can be attributed to drifting back toward forager values as we get rich. So is that your next book? Well, that's that was part of Age of M. In the first few chapters, I outlined that. I thought of making that into a bigger book, but I didn't really have enough as much to say. And so that's why, you know, it's only just the beginning of Age of M that includes that. But in the last few centuries, we've been drifting, you know, toward democracy, toward leisure, toward art, toward promiscuity, uh, low fertility, low religion, you know, less war. Just most of the major trends can be understood as moving back toward forager values. And that people like that and they like to look forward to a future where that continues, a Star Trek future or culture novel future where uh, we get even richer and even more able to indulge ourselves and more peaceful and, and um, you know, more art and everything else. And one of the key features about the age of M is that doesn't happen for the robots in the age of M. So the biological humans who are off on the margins of that world, uh, retired and living uh, basically the rich capitalists spending the vast wealth that they have uh, as part of the M world. Their attitudes continue in that direction, but the robots do not. They are now poor again. They are living at subsistence level and um, they have need of you know, social conformity and other pressures to get them to act in the ways that this world wants them to act. So what happens in a, in a scenario like that where you have essentially enslavement? Is that it's not, no, I, I mean, slavery is certainly possible in, in most any world, but I doubt it's very common in this future. I, I just don't think it's very productive. So in the past, in history, we've had times when there was uh, plentiful land and scarce labor. And then there's been times when there's been lots of labor and not so much land. When there is lots of land, but not much labor, then wages are high. <laughs> And that's a time when you might want to own a slave because there's a value in owning a slave. Um, if you don't own a slave, you'll have to pay high wages. And if you own a slave, you just have to pay as much as it takes to feed them and, and uh, keep them locked down. 
in the other periods where there's plenty of people and not so much land, wages fall to near subsistence level. And in those times, there's actually not so much point in owning slaves. It'll cost you about as much to feed a slave as it will to hire a independent free worker. And that's how, of course, most times have been in history, times and places. People have been, you know, the wages have been near subsistence level. But in the last few hundred years, we've been getting rich. And so, you know, there's been a lot more value in owning a slave uh, in a rich world. The age of M is a world where they go back to near subsistence. Uh, and so there's not actually that much point in owning slaves. And in addition, we, we know about the productivity of different kinds of treating people as slaves in, in the economy, say, in, in the U.S. South. Slavery is more effective with relatively simple jobs, like uh, picking cotton or cutting down wood or things like that. House slaves and city slaves who had more complicated jobs with more discretion and, and couldn't be monitored as well, they were treated a lot better and they were often like, like, treated nearly as, as well as a free worker because uh, treating them really harshly just wasn't very effective in those kinds of jobs. And most jobs in the M world are those kinds of jobs. Let's play devil's advocate. So I actually am writing a blog post now, A Century of Slavery, and it's looking at how we may enter an, a new era of slavery. And what I've noticed is every time humanity's discovered another race or species of of human or related, then we've enslaved them because, of course, they're inferior to us. And we can come up with whatever moral reason we need to, to have someone else help us for free. Well, I'm, I'm not sure which examples you have in mind. Certainly, you know, humans have enslaved animals, the ones that we can. Now, now you know, this is actually a very small fraction of animals that we can domesticate. And most animals just won't put up with it. So we either kill them or leave them alone. But the animals that could be domesticated, we did. But, you know, animals have had a very simple jobs in our economy. <laughs> and so in slavery uh, can work for those very simple jobs. They don't require very much judgment or discretion uh, and they can be monitored well. Uh, now, when humans have encountered each other, they've, of course, uh, sometimes enslaved each other. Uh, in, you know, in the ancient world, it was a common, you know, thing in war to enslave your, the losers, not the killer, enslave them. And that was one of the ways you could sort of take value out of the losers. You could grab their land, you could grab their women, you could grab their physical stuff, and you could enslave the others. So, um, But slavery didn't usually last in the sense that uh, the slaves didn't have this population of slaves who kept growing their population uh, to be maintained. Usually the population of slaves would decline until you conquered another area and grabbed another bunch of slaves. In that example, but I meant more specifically, so... We had the we had the, the triangular trade. We also had religious slavery, essentially Christians and Muslims. We've had a lot of different us and them mentality. It's essentially I don't know that there's a there's a proper word for that. But essentially, whenever you can create a barrier between yourself and someone else in your mind, yeah, it becomes much easier from a propaganda standpoint to do whatever you want or need. So, so uh, actually, in the revised version of Age of M, I, I have more discussion of this than I didn't have in the first uh, version. There's a section on slavery, and there's also a section on sort of um, uh, dehumanization or anthropomorphizing. And so uh, we humans have these two capacities. We, on the one hand, um, look at most everything in a is it like me or not sort of way. And so we are tempted to anthropomorphize many things uh, that are not very human. Um, and we have done that all through history because we don't have a very rich sort of vocabulary for what kind of things that we can think about. Uh, on the other hand, we also have the capacity to dehumanize, to take something that like fits all these criteria and, and tell ourselves it doesn't if when that's convenient for us. Uh, and so, you know, you're talking about the latter of taking something that by any straightforward, obvious measure <laughs> would, would be very human-like and, and calling it not human because you don't want to see them as human. Or even factory farming. Sure. But now factory farming, they are, animals are hu human-like in some ways and, and not in other ways. But, but since we don't, want to see, to see the factory animals as like us, then we choose not to. 
Mm-hmm. What what I what I'm primarily worried about is as we're entering a world where CRISPR technology becomes more prevalent among the super rich, when you can begin to have evolution happening on a, a generational or shorter time frame, then it's going to start out incredibly expensive. If it starts out incredibly expensive, only the super rich are using it, then you're going to have exponentially larger differences between rich and poor, potentially leading to extended lives and significantly better circumstances for one than the other class, ultimately probably creating different species of human. Uh, well, so I, I mean, I think the timescales over, over which those things could make big changes are long. So I, I actually personally think the other more robotic AI and M scenarios are, are more likely to have the cause dramatic changes over the longer timescale. But of course, they also have differences in different kinds of creatures. I, I don't think the sort of the mere inequality across classes is the, the driving force. You know, as we've noted, the, we can take humans who are intrinsically quite similar. And when in the past, when we've wanted to treat them quite differently, we have. That hasn't been a barrier. On the other hand, if we want to treat things that are quite different from us as like us, we, we can and do that. We anthropomorphize, as we've said. So I, I think it's more about uh, what we choose to do. Speaking of what we choose to do, there's a lot of problems in the world. What would you say are the largest problems in which you would like to be solved of any specific order? Well, so I'm a social scientist, and I've spent a lot of my life thinking about what the problems in the world are and thinking about solutions. And of course, what we economists in particular do is we think about institutional changes. That is, you could try to imagine telling people to have different attitudes, and maybe you could even succeed in this some short run, but um, it's hard to make those stick. And so we economists tend to focus on how could we arrange institutions, how the rules of interaction and, and uh, you know, who participates, how, et cetera, such that we have a better outcome. And uh, obviously, there are ways in which culture supports that, but it's just really hard to figure out how to make culture different and how to, how to control it and to make it be the way you want. But institutions, we can more concretely imagine how they could be different. We can have different voting rules or different property tax rules, et cetera. And so much of what we economists do is try to think about what are the biggest areas where the current rules are, are producing uh, you know, unfortunate outcomes and that we could make them better. And I think we know a lot of those things. We know a lot of different ways in which institutions can be improved. As someone who spent a whole career you know, doing that and watching other people do that, I think I can just say with confidence, we know a lot. The harder thing is to get anybody to care. So what more fundamentally we need is, is a process, better process by which when you come up with a better institution, you can get people to adopt it. That's the thing we lack. And our existing institutions for proposing better institutions, i.e., you know, startup businesses or you know, being a politician and lobbying for political wow. change, those are pretty broken. And so, um, you know, one, of course, is tempted to figure out better systems for those things so that you can get more things adopted. But even then, when you come up and you can come up with better proposals, even then, the hard part is you can't get anybody to care. So most fundamentally, the problem we have is, you know, first, there's the problem of having bad institutions. And then there's the problem of coming up with better ideas for institutions. And then there's the problem of getting anybody to want to care about those better ideas for institutions in order to uh, promote them and try to make them happen. And most proximately, a lot of these better ideas, what they mainly need is small scale experiments. A lot of our best ideas for institutional reform uh, look good on paper or even in mathematical theorems. But what they need is is small organizations, small group to try them out for a while, small towns, small cities. And there's just very little interest in doing that. So what the world most needs is small groups, small towns, small organizations, even small churches to be willing to try to help us come up with better institutions by trying out some of the many ideas that people have come up with. It's like there's a there are a couple of movements now in the especially libertarian and blockchain communities around trying to start decentralized or alternative governments or countries. They're small. Yeah, although, I mean, 
again, they're mostly doing software. So, you know, my, my main critique about the crypto world is it's just way too focused on software. They're, they're, they love to write software. They want to hack software. They want to make more software tools. And of course, that's useful. But you also need to interact with actual customers and actual people doing real things and help them. And people, of course, say in principle they want to do that. But when it comes down to the nitty gritty of, of messing with that, they'd rather write software. So um, it's a major problem with scientists <laughs> and developers. They would much rather work on their work than actually try to convince others. Well, I just convinced other, but, but, but just get involved in the iterative process. So just so for like with prediction markets, as I was saying before, you know, most innovation uh, includes some abstract idea, some general idea that uh, can be described simply and uh, has a lot of ab- abstract potential. But then it also needs a lot of detail, a lot of concrete detail that's in a particular context to be worked out to make it work. Uh, this is true, of, of course, of most physical technologies and other software technologies we use in the world. And it's true of even social innovations like prediction markets. It's not enough just to have a good abstract idea. You need to field that abstract idea in actual concrete circumstances and see the actual problems that show up in that concrete circumstance and then iterate by trying variations until you find things that work better. That's how most technology anywhere has ever been done. And of course, the person who came up with the abstract idea tends to get more celebration and attention than the people who worked out all those concrete details. But unless somebody works out the concrete details, you know, it doesn't happen. Yeah, it's the lean startup and there's no such thing as an overnight success. Right, because you have to make a product and then put it in front of real customers and find out what they do or don't like about it and change, iterate, etc. And if you're lucky, you will eventually iterate to something they like before you run out of money. But you have to be, that's rare. So, so Robin, transitioning completely, yeah, you're signed up as a cryonics patient. We actually had Dennis Kowalski of the Cryonics Institute on. I'm curious, I imagine your book Age of M inspired this or vice versa? Well, I hope uh, to be revived as a M. That is, uh, cryonics is this process by which you take somebody today where medical technology gives up on them. So they are officially legally dead, but you don't give up on them. You freeze them in liquid nitrogen and you hope that later on new medical technology will be able to undo whatever was wrong with them and whatever went wrong in the freezing process. Now, uh, the more, the cruder that freezing process, the harder that problem is. And the more that had gone wrong, the harder the problem is. And the harder, the problem is also harder if you intend to bring back their physical body as a physical body to the full, you know, vigor it was before it had the problem or even when it's young, that's just a really hard problem. So that'll take a long time to, to succeed. I, I think eventually it will be possible, but it's a long way off. You can freeze them today and hope for that. And then your main risk is whether the organization will last long enough to, to preserve you until somebody could do something. But the brain emulation process should be a lot easier than repairing your entire physical body. The brain emulation process is just to scan the brain and just to see the key information about each cell to tell what kind of cell it is and what its key state is. And so I think brain emulations will just be a lot easier to do than the full cryonics revival. And so it'll happen sooner. And if you are worried about the process of preserving you lasting, you, you want to grab the first way out you can find. And so that's me. I, I want the first way out. And so I think brain emulation will, will be feasible long before a full biological revival would be, would be feasible. And so that's what I want. And then the age of M is about the world of emulations, which would include a few previous cryonics patients. Two, two ironic things. So you would essentially be reincarnated as a second class citizen. But it's also kind of interesting because you won't be reincarnated as you. So you're kind of saving someone else's life. And in a sense, we don't have to get into that part. It's a little bit more touchy, but with the, with the gut brain, etc. So you were at NASA and Lockheed. What were you focused on? We haven't talked about your physics background much. Well, at NASA and Lockheed, I wasn't doing physics. <laughs> I was doing artificial intelligence research. 
So I got a master's in physics at Chicago in 84, and I also got a master's in conceptual foundations of science, which is related to philosophy of science. And then I read about cool things happening in artificial intelligence off in Silicon Valley. I also read about things happening in hypertext publishing, which is the precursor to the web. And so I went off to Silicon Valley to seek my future. I found a job at a Lockheed, which I tried to weasel my way into doing AI stuff, even though I had no background in that. Artificial intelligence is a bit of a buzzword or a rebrand. Robin will explain a bit more what the industry used to look like, what's happened since, and why he thinks this isn't the last boom and bust cycle. And then on the side, I hang out with the Xanadu group and other people interested in hypertext publishing in the future. And so, um, you know, within that group was Eric Drexler and his, his book on nanotechnology that had just come out. And so I spent a lot of time then talking with futurists about, and of course, cryonics at that time is when I heard about that. And uh, I had this job doing AI research. <laughs> And as you, as you may know, that was a big AI boom. I, I, all the newspapers and media was talking about how AI was big and was going to change everything really fast, really soon. And of course, that's a lot like today because we have another big AI boom. And uh, of course, that was wrong and it was overhyped. And that's also true today. It's also overhyped today. So, you know, this boom will also pass to another uh, decline. And, you know, we've had these waves of increase and decrease in interest in AI that go back for uh, many, many decades. And so, but I was caught up in that boom. I was young, 20 year old, 20 something. <laughs> And uh, I, you know, learned to do AI research uh, at the time and learned a lot of concepts that uh, as a physicist, I didn't realize uh, there was that much to learn. So as you may know, physicists are told that, you know, physics is pretty much all you need to do everything. And there's nothing else that much interesting to learn in the world. And so, you know, they don't actually think there's that much interesting to learn about computers. Uh, if you want to do something with computer, you just tell a physicist to go you know, read the manual and write the computer, do the computer to do whatever you need done. And so uh, I was surprised uh, to learn how much interesting there was to, to know about computers and how to make them work and, and the key concepts behind them. It's interesting how short-sighted a lot of academics are in thinking that their world is the only world. Well, that's all people, humans, really. We're all short-sighted. Fair point. Underestimate all the other worlds around us. And I, actually, that's I, you know one of the selling points, I think, for Age of M is people often celebrate, say, travel uh, as a way to understand how things are different or, you know, exploring other disciplines or topics, uh, reading history as a way to, to expand your mind and see how different things can be. And I think seeing a very different future uh, in detail is also a way to expand and see how different the world can be to break yourself out of the little uh, rut you've been in and see a larger vista. And that is the purpose for Fringe FM, because we have enough dystopian Hollywood movies. We might as well at least present some of the good stuff as well. I have one last question for you. So who's your favorite futurist or AI-focused researcher that you look to or think is someone that other people should check out? Futurist or AI research? Well, I mean, very influential in my life was Douglas Lennett. Uh, that was a long time ago. He hasn't written so much lately about the topic, but it was very influential for me at the time to see the potential for what AI could be and uh, things like that. I don't know. Does that help? <laughs> that That's helpful. Are, are you more optimistic or pessimistic when you think about AI? Than other people or than just in, my, just used to be? Just in general, do you sway to the left or to the right for optimism and pessimism? So I think the progress will be slow. So I, I think people are overestimating how rapid progress will be. And uh, I have a different set of priorities and what I think the concerns are. I, I'm less concerned about one machine in a basement taking over the world in a weekend. And I'm just more concerned about uh, which way the world will drift and uh, want to understand which way the world is likely to drift and ask, uh, you know, what lever points there might be. I, I, I think people tend to way overestimate how much influence we can have on these things. Uh, the world is, is like a big train with nobody driving it. And it's hard for any one small group of people to, to, to move it a little, but still, we should think about what we can do and do what we can. Which way do you think we're headed to uh, bulletproofing our Teslas or universal basic income of some kind? I don't think, um, well, 
once robots or computers actually displace humans all over the economy, uh, at that point, uh, people will have to rely on charity or they'll starve <laughs> unless they have prepared sufficiently. So I, I think one of the biggest things we can try to do to prepare is to try to encourage people to, to set up some sort of insurance or sharing arrangements to deal with that risk. I think generically trying to set up a universal income isn't a very well-targeted policy for that risk. It would be much more effective to just have an insurance policy that pays off in that scenario uh, because the premiums would be far lower then. I, I don't actually see a universal basic income happening as a generic political thing anytime soon. And uh, you might imagine it happening in response to some big disaster, but then it's kind of too late to set it up as insurance. Then um, it's a matter of whether people want to help you. So uh, I, you know, I recommend that you not try to rely on other people's charity and that you try to set things up proactively ahead of time. I like it. That's a, that's a good way to end this, is just make sure that you're focused on what you need to do to succeed in the future. Where's the best place for people to find you, Robin? Well, I'm on Twitter, at Robin Hansen. I have a website, hansen.gmu.edu, and my two books, uh, ageofm.com, and my other brain, which we haven't, a book we haven't talked about, elephantinthebrain.com. And we will have links and all that great stuff in the show notes, guys. Thanks for coming on today, Robin. Nice talking to you. One challenge for listeners, by the way. Give them a challenge. Not related to your books, just something you want them to look into, do, or think about. Challenge to my listeners. Um, well, my generic challenge to people who are somewhat intellectual is to, you know, can you stop, pay less attention to the momentary political, cultural debate and, you know, look at deep, enduring issues. Like, focus on the big, enduring, deep questions as opposed to the local talk. But there's, way, there's way too much a temptation to, to follow the current conversation, whatever everybody's talking about, to talk about that. And that stuff doesn't last. Uh, 20 years from now, you'll hardly know why you were talking about that. That's the purpose of this podcast. There's much too much short-term thinking and not enough people thinking forward. Thanks for coming on, Robin. Take care. Ever notice how you listen to a podcast and the host is reading two or three minutes of ads at the beginning of every episode and at the end? I know I have to skip two or three minutes into a podcast just to get to the good stuff. I hate that. I'm sure you do too. The thing is... Podcasts need to survive, and advertising seems to be the way to do it. The only problem is their trust and transparency that's provided from the podcasting medium, the you-to-me, you-to-us message, gets distorted. If we're constantly trying to sell you a nice new mattress or some conferencing software, can you really trust what we're talking about on the podcast and that we're being open and honest and not going with the whims of whatever our advertising may say? We think that that is impossible and that the advertising ecosystem is destroying our society as we know it. We at Fringe FM want to fight this, and we think that if you believe in the better world and mission that we're trying to produce, then you would too. Did you know you can make a tax-deductible donation to Fringe FM? Fringe FM is fiscally sponsored by a 501c3 nonprofit. Advancing Science Worldwide wanted to work with us because of our mission of trying to make the world better through science and education. If you guys believe in what we do, please visit fringe.fm slash give, where you can make a tax-deductible donation, learn more about our organization, and find out any additional details you may need to be able to write this off for taxes. If you think that this makes your money go further than passing it over to the tax guy, then we would love if you would consider supporting Fringe FM. Again, that's fringe.fm slash give for more details, and thank you so much for your support. If you want more of Fringe FM, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to fringe.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interviews with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. And you can follow me on Twitter at It's Matt Ward. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review in iTunes to help more people discover Fringe FM.